So I think it's probably true that most of us have a favorite Bible verse. Yours may be John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Or maybe it's Matthew 11.28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I have never met a single person, however, whose favorite Bible verse is Luke 6:27. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. This is not a verse that we come back to regularly for comfort. It's too strong, it's too strange, and it is way too difficult. Because of this, because of how hard this passage is, whenever we read it, the first thing that we do is we start thinking of exceptions and excuses, right? So the first words that come out of our mouths in response to Jesus' instructions here are, but what about, and we then fill in the blank with special circumstances and truly evil figures from history, all in an effort to deflect the direct assault to our sensibilities that is Jesus' command to love our enemies. But we can't deflect this assault. And at the, the end of the day, we don't want to. We need to hear this hard command and we need to wrestle with it if we are going to understand the God we worship and if we are going to enjoy the life that he longs for us to live. So this morning, as we continue in our series, Surprised by Jesus, we're going to take Jesus' words on the chin and we're going to unpack them together. We'll do that by asking three questions. Who, how, and why? Whom should we love? How should we love them? And why should we love them like this? So we, we begin with that most straightforward question, who? And verses 27 and 28 are clear. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So Jesus says, love your enemies, and then just in case we don't understand what he means, he says that we are to love the people who hate us, curse us, abuse us, strike us, and steal from us. These are not hypothetical enemies. These are not mean people lurking online. These are the folks who live down the street, whose kids go to school with your kids, people that you work with, people that you're related to. Now for those who were listening to Jesus that day, this wasn't theoretical either. Jesus was speaking to a crowd comprised mostly of Jews in the rural region around Galilee. They lived under foreign occupation in a military state that was propped up by corrupt and compromised fellow Jews. These people had real enemies. A squad of Roman centurions lived in nearby Capernaum in order to keep the people in check and to enforce Roman law. The Jews had been abused both verbally and physically. Their land had been stolen. And here Jesus was telling them to love the Romans. That's hard to hear. It's hard for them and it's hard for us. And it can also be confusing. We need to understand this about Jesus' words here. When Jesus commands us to love our enemies, he's not saying to the woman whose husband physically abuses her that she has to stay in that marriage. 
He's not telling the business owner whose accountant is committing fraud to look the other way. He's not inviting us to ignore injustice or violence. So we know from scripture that God cares about justice and that he protects the weak and the vulnerable with an intensity that we can't come close to matching. Jesus is not telling us to turn a blind eye to injustice or to pretend that evil doesn't exist. He's not really actually addressing these things here at all. Here, he's concerned with the state of our hearts and how we treat other people. He knows how easy it is to give in to the hatred of the world and then to be shaped by it. He wants to break that cycle of hate, to protect our hearts, and through us to change the world. And so he tells us to love our enemies. So verses 27 to 31, they're a punch straight to the jaw. Love your enemies. And Jesus follows up with a, a jab to the gut in verses 32 to 36, where he broadens the scope of his command. Don't just love the people who will love you back, he says, but those who will give you nothing in return. Now, it's not as forceful as the command to love your enemies, but it's equally painful because it exposes the weakness of our normal ways of loving. So verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefits that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. According to Jesus, love is not this tit-for-tat game where you give to me as I give to you. Love is an invitation to show endless grace and to expect nothing in return. A friend of mine has a 15-year-old adopted daughter, and she is in the midst of full-on, mean-spirited rebellion. And last week he told me that he had finally confessed to his wife just a few days earlier. He said to her, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I don't know how much longer I can continue to love this child who shows absolutely no sign of loving me in return. It's just too hard. Now, he's the kind of man who is going to keep loving his daughter no matter what. But in those words to his wife, he gave voice to just how hard it is to love when you can't expect anything at all in return. That kind of love, it requires not just stamina and grace, but deep reserves of wisdom. And that's the love that Jesus expects of us. Love for our enemies and love for those who will never, ever love us back. I want to stop here for just a moment because I think it's important for us to name names before we go on. Now, obviously, I don't want you naming your enemies or your unlovable family members out loud. They might hear you. It's, it's, a, it's a little early. It took a second. But here's what I want. I want you to see them in your mind's eye. I want you to see them in your mind's eye. Who in your life, who in your life is Jesus challenging you to love? 
I want, I want you to take a moment, if you, if you can, to jot down their initials. Jot down their initials somewhere only where you will see them and tuck them away for later. If this is who we are to love, then how do we do it? We need to go back to that first paragraph in order to, to see. Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So he points to our actions, do good. Then to our words, bless. And finally to our prayers, pray. One thing that's, that's clear from this string of commands is that love is not a feeling. So in order to love someone, we don't even have to like them. We don't have to be filled with warmth at the thought of them. They can even repulse us. But we can still love them. We can love them by treating them with dignity rather than disdain. By refusing to speak ill of them in public or cruelly to them in private. By choosing to pray for them rather than to fixate on how terrible they are. Love isn't measured by how we feel about someone but by how we treat them, how we speak of them, and whether or not we pray for them. Friends, we need to treat people better. I am really tired of watching Christians tear people apart online. Sarcasm, mockery, personal attack, gossip, and arrogant one-liners, they are not the way we love our enemies. Patience, and tenderness and generosity are. We're to love with our actions, our words, and especially we're to love with our prayers. Why is it, do you think, that Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies? I'm sure there are lots of reasons. I could think of two. And the first is when we pray for someone, the nature of that relationship changes. It's no longer just you and him. It's you and him and God. And when God is in the room, we treat people differently, don't we? It's harder to lash out at someone in anger when God is standing there. It's harder to harbor resentment when God is watching. We pray for our enemies in order to bring God into that relationship. Second, as we pray for others, we slowly learn to see them as God sees them. So this is part of the miracle of prayer. When we let our guard down with God and we talk to him about those who hurt us, insult us, or abuse us, you know what he does? He allows us to see them as he sees them, as the sad, broken, sin-controlled people that they are. And he invites us to share first his sorrow over them and then his love. So if you want proof that loving your enemies is possible, start praying for them. And you can start off simply, very simply, with a prayer like this. Lord God, you are responsible for this person. I am not. I know that you are a God of love. Allow me to see her as you see her and lead me to love her like you do. It starts that simply. Pray for your enemies and you will eventually learn to love them. Now, I think we need to be honest about something 
here in this passage. One of the things that we instinctively dislike about Jesus' instructions is that they make Christians and Christianity seem weak, right? Jesus doesn't say, stand up for yourselves. He says, turn the other cheek, and he actually means it. But what if this apparent weakness, what if this apparent weakness were actually a different way of showing strength? What if by showing restraint, grace, and patience in the face of abuse or hatred, we actually display a form of strength greater than the kind of strength that's celebrated by the world around us? I think that's what's going on here, and I think you can begin to see this as you consider the implications of the practical instructions that Jesus gives in verses 29 to 31. So in verse 29, Jesus says, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. So in the culture of Jesus' day, a slap on the face was meant to humiliate more than to harm, just like today. The intent was to cause embarrassment, to turn your face and to invite a second slap would have destroyed the power of the intended insult. Turning the other cheek is the equivalent of saying, go ahead, hit me again. You have no power over me to demean me. My honor, my dignity are not up to you. I appreciate how one commentator talks about the difference between retaliation and love here. He writes this, he says, he who retaliates, a slap for a slap, thinks that he's manfully resisting aggression. In fact, he's making an unconditional surrender to evil. Where before there was one, there was one under the control of evil, now there are two. Evil propagates by contagion. It can be contained and defeated only when hatred, injury, and insult are absorbed and neutralized by love. Now that's not weakness, that's true strength. In verse 29, Jesus moves on to another example saying, from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So the imagined setting is a robbery. A thief knocks you to the ground and grabs your coat, but before he can run off, you stop him and you hand him your undershirt. In this instance, a moment that had been defined by a theft is now defined by a gift. The victim's no longer passive. The victim is active and actually in control. Do you remember that incredible scene from Les Miserables when Jean Valjean, having stolen the household silver of a godly priest, is given his candlesticks as well when he's caught? In that moment, all of the power shifted. The thief became the unwitting victim of grace. Generosity overpowers greed every single time. Now I think it's worth noting here that the situation envisioned by Jesus of stopping a thief mid-robbery long enough to disrobe and give him your underwear is highly impractical, even absurd. And the point is not that we should literally take off our clothes when someone asks for our wallet. The point is that we should always be looking to overpower evil and hatred with love. And that in order to do so, we should be willing to make sacrifices 
and willing to endure public shame in order to do so. Finally, in verse 30, Jesus says, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Giving in the Roman world was, uh, always came with strings attached. Either there was the creation of debt or the redistribution redistrib- of power or honor. One never simply gave something away. But that's what Jesus tells us to do. Why? When we give without the expectation of receiving something in return, we make it clear that we already have everything we need. If you have been given all things in Christ, you can be generous to others. Again, I I love how one commentator describes the contrast between duty and love in this context. Duty obeys the rules, but love grasps opportunities. Duty acts under constraint. Love is spontaneous and therefore gracious. Duty expects to be recompensed or at least recognized. Love expects nothing in return. Do you see how physical restraint, a willingness to suffer, unexpected generosity, and the refusal to claim a debt can all become acts of extraordinary power? Love isn't weak. It takes courage, it takes strength, and it, and it takes character to love like this, even if it looks to all the world like weakness. Jesus isn't encouraging passivity or inaction. He's encouraging radical generosity and extravagant grace in the face of hatred. This is how we're meant to love. And it takes guts. We've got one more question to ask, and that's why. Why should we love like this? Well, it's because this is how Jesus loves us. Consider the what Jesus experienced on his way to the cross. Just think about the details of that day. He turned his cheek to the kiss of his betrayer when he could have stopped them at any time. He endured the the spewing, spitting hatred of the high priest and the scribes who cursed him in public. And instead of cursing back, he stood quietly and then simply affirmed that he was the son of God. Jesus was stripped and he was beaten and he was publicly humiliated and he didn't strike back. His cloak was taken and then his tunic. He shed his clothing even though he had all the power of heaven in his hands to prevent it. And then when at the moment of his greatest agony, the thief next to him begged for forgiveness, not only did he forgive him, he promised him paradise as well, asking for nothing in return. This is how Jesus loves his enemies and how he loves those who have nothing to give him back. And this hits closer to home than we want it to. In Romans 5, Paul writes the following. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, while we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We are weak, ungodly sinners who by nature are at enmity with God. We only receive forgiveness because Jesus chose to love his enemies. 
He chose to love us. When God shows mercy, is it a sign of weakness? When he chooses to forgive us again and again and again for the same thing, is it because he's powerless? Is God wrong to grant salvation to sinners? Is he stupid for loving those who are unfaithful to him? Is the cross a symbol of shame or is it a symbol of glory? Why should we love our enemies? Because we were God's enemy once and he loved us enough to die for us. He lived his own command in order to save you. So if you wrote down someone's initials earlier or if you thought about them, I want you to pull them back out and I want you to write your initials down next to theirs. It's a reminder that you were once God's enemy and he chose to love you. And it's a promise that he will give you grace to love your enemies just like he loves you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your incredible, extravagant love, for your willingness to suffer, to be shamed, to be abused and cursed and reviled. We thank you that you loved your enemies, including us. And we ask for your grace that we might learn to love our enemies too. We pray that through your church, your love might spread throughout the world, break the cycle of hate, and bring redemption to many. We pray this for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.